Welcome to episode two of Chris and Eric's Longbox Adventure. Welcome, welcome. Uh, last week we started things off in the 70s with Giant Size X-Men. We're going to be bumping up a bit to the 80s this week. Uh, this was your pick, so want to go ahead and introduce what the topic of the week is. Um, so this is my big introduction of Doctor Who comics to the podcast. Um, I promise I won't do this too much, but I had to bring in at least something. Uh, these ones are slightly special because they're written by legendary comic scribe Grant Morrison. Um, so we are doing the story Changes that was published in Doctor Who magazine uh, numbers 118 and 119. The World Shapers, published in Doctor Who mag- magazine 127 through 129. And Culture Shock, published in Doctor Who magazine 139. I understand you've never watched or read or seen any other Doctor Who. Yeah, I have never watched an episode of Doctor Who. I had like a teacher who was really into it in high school. And then I saw the general like Tumblr fandom of it in college. And it just didn't appeal to me, you know, because I was just kind of like, that looks like nerd shit. And it wasn't that I thought I was above that because obviously I was already reading comics but I was like that looks like nerd shit that doesn't interest me it did not look like my personal brand of nerd shit um so unless I'm really forgetting something these were my first times consuming Doctor Who media of any kind and I liked it a bit more than I thought I would you know like it wasn't immediately obsession like oh my god these are amazing but i was like oh these are good yeah um it helps that these are written by grant morrison this is definitely a good like early example of morrison writing um i believe this is pre anything for dc comics i comparative dates are not my strong suit um so for those who don't know and for your benefit um Doctor Who is a British TV show that has been around in some form or another since 1963. Um, The original version ran all the way through to 1989, got technically put on hiatus, not cancelled, but um, disappeared for ages, came back for a TV movie that was co-produced with some Americans in 1996 that failed to get off the ground, came back in 2005 um, to massive success, and that's still going on now. We're currently at, um, depending on how you count, anywhere from 13 to 16 prominent actors to play the Doctor, possibly more. Um, the, 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 the ease to explain the premise of the show got a lot more complicated recently, but for the context of the 80s material we're reading now, the Doctor is an alien, um, called a Time Lord. They are a bunch of aliens who look like humans, but will occasionally, when they die, change their face, which is why there's been a whole bunch of different actors to play the role. 
Um, when their face changes, their personality will greatly change as well. But, like, it's more like a, a, a nature change, not a nurture change, maybe. Like, the evil ones tend to still be evil, and the good ones tend to still be good, usually. And the Doctor got bored on Gallifrey, because they don't interfere with other planets and other species. Store a TARDIS, which is their time machines, they're bigger on the inside. Uh, the Doctor's one is a bit crap and doesn't work very well, but it's also the most traveled and experienced ship in the entire universe at this point, and went off, wound up mostly by accident, just becoming an intergalactic savior figure. So am I to take all of that to mean that, like, David Tennant's character is, like, the same doctor, same creature or being as, like, every other one? Like, all of the actors are playing the same person reincarnated? Yes. So the doctor dies... And then, depending on how good the special effects are that episode, will in some way change into the next actor. I'm assuming there are nice YouTube compilations I can look up of watching the, like, CGI face morph yes. of doctors into each other. Yes, absolutely. There's a <laughs> They recently added about, like, 20 new on-screen doctors because they established that the doctor had, like, a past they couldn't remember from before the first Doctor that we see on television that's really complicated, and technically the Doctor's not even a Time Lord anymore, but instead the alien being the Time Lords modified themselves to be like. Um, so, uh, it, it, it's, yeah, I don't know if that compilation will include all of the, like, minor characters who appeared for five seconds in one episode, but the, um, yeah. Yeah. Also... Before we fully get into the stories, one other character lore question. So, Frobisher? Forbisher? Frobisher. So, is he comics only, or is there a penguin in any of the shows? He is not in the television show, but there are two audio dramas featuring Frobisher. So, Frobisher has a definitive voice. Did they give a penguin a mic and let it squeak into it <laughs> no um oh, i can't remember the actor's name right now but um no he's he, he sounds american well that's disappointing yeah yeah because he's it's like an old detective type voice um there was holy terror which is this really weird story set inside a castle that isn't a castle um it's so strange there's like a terrifying demon baby it's bizarre. And then there's the Maltese Penguin, which is much more Frobisher-focused. Oh yeah, for context, um, Frobisher is a shape-shifting alien who prefers to look like a talking penguin. He is one of the Doctor's companions. Basically, the Doctor travels around the universe, usually with an Earth woman in her 20s. But occasionally, there'll be more interesting companions. The comics frequently like to throw an alien in there for the fun of drawing them. Um, so the Doctor in... The first story we're looking at today, Changes, is traveling with Frobisher and a American biology... Uh, what's, what's, what's biology but just plants? Herpetology? Uh, botany? Botany, yeah. The doctor's traveling with Frobisher and an American botany student named Perry, um, who has been traveling with the doctor for quite a while now and is very used to all this. So for these, like, young female companions, is this, like, obligatory heterosexuality? Are they allowed to, like, be characters 
are they love interests? And if so, are they actually allowed to have personalities? Or are they just the Bond girls for the Doctor? Um, so classic Doctor Who had a very strict no-kissing-no-hugging policy in play. Um, the classic Who companions would only, like, start having a romantic interest when they were about to leave the show. So they would just, like, pick a person in whatever episode they're in, on whatever planet they're on, and they're like, I want to marry this person. I have to not travel with you anymore, Doctor. Most of them don't leave quite that badly, but sometimes they would write them out at the last minute, and that's what they did, which is terrible. Um, Perry's time on the show, the Sixth Doctor era, which is when Perry was mostly on the show, was, like, really nasty and gross. Perry spent most of her time getting sexually harassed by a lot of villains. Just, like, every single evil dude who saw her was just, like, all over her. Um, it's really, really fucking gross. That is not surprising to hear, unfortunately. Um, another question before diving fully in. Yep. Why does the TARDIS, meaning, like, the iconic TARDIS, the Why is it a wooden box? Why does it look like that? So, the first Doctor Who story, um, is set in 1963, and he picks up some modern-day people at the time. Um, it's landed in a junkyard, and it looks like they're called police boxes. They were a phone booth that was exclusively for policemen. And it had the... They were actually made of concrete. They weren't made of wood. But everyone remembers them as being made of wood because the version in the show has lasted so much longer than the original version. But they were a common thing to see in 1963. And the um, TARDIS can look like anything. It disguises itself when it lands. Um, but the circuit broke and the TARDIS has just been stuck as a police box the entire time since then. Like, the Doctor gets out after the first trip away from 1960s Earth and is, like, annoyed that it looks the same as it did on 60s Earth. Um, the original idea was, like, something familiar being put in, like, the alien locations they were gonna do would be a fun visual, and, um, nowadays it's just, oh, that's what the TARDIS looks like. Gotcha. Um, I guess, are there any other basic lore things you wanted to do before the stories, or did we pretty much cover it? I think I feel like I know the basic gist, I think. Um, not really. I, anything else I'll just bring up. And um, when we get to the world shapers, which we're going to cover last, because I think that's the one that's just going to lead to the most ranting, um, I will explain what the fuck is happening in that story, because it is insanely complicated on multiple levels. But um, luckily the other two stories I think are very simple, just one and done um, little adventures. Thank God. So, yeah, we're going to start off with Changes. Um, this was scripted by Grant Morrison, with art by John Ridgway, letters by Annie Havocry, editor Sheila Craner, and as I said earlier, it was originally printed in Doctor Who magazine, issues 118 and 119. This is the one of the shapeshifter alien, right? Yeah. Yeah, so basically this one just opens with Perry in a room in the TARDIS, which is bigger on the inside. Don't know if I mentioned that. It's, like, huge inside the very small box. So I assume it's, like, basically just, like, sci-fi, like, the insides of it will, like, change to fit the plot. Like, it's just, like, sort of enormously large. Like, my impression was there's all sorts of rooms and shit. Yeah, yeah. It's It's been firmly established for ages. There's a lot of rooms. You normally on screen will only ever see the main control room. 
and they'll just set whatever scene is in the TARDIS in there. But we've occasionally gone to, like, characters have bedrooms. We know there's hallways. There's been, like, one or two episodes that have gone, like, further in, but they wind up not looking good because of budget. Um, Stuff like comics will normally go a lot crazier with this because they can. Um, But the TARDIS is literally, like, another dimension on the inside, so it's infinite, theoretically. Gotcha. Um, There's a swimming pool. The swimming pool is very important. The swimming pool is very important. <laughs> it, it, is a, there is a, it is a major plot point in several episodes in the 11th Doctor's tenure that there is a swimming pool inside the TARDIS. It saves lives. Okay. Um, yeah, so this one, basically, Perry is looking at um, some of the Doctor's stuff, is shocked to find some art by Michelangelo and Van Gogh in there. Um, and the Doctor says there is an intruder in the TARDIS, and they don't pay any attention to him whatsoever. They wind up following the Doctor, um, after he leaves, and there's a lot of confusion because the intruder is a shapeshifter, and is able to look like them, and trick them. Uh, what did you think of this one? I like the alien in this. His appearance shifts because he's a shapeshifter but the like assumedly default state before he like turns into Perry and everything is I guess not fully like praying mantis but definitely like insectoid with these bulging eyes and antenna and as we established last week I like weird animal characters and I especially like weird insect characters so anytime an alien in sci-fi just looks like an insect, but it's bipedal, I like it. So I think that's fun. Um, like you mentioned, Perry and Frobisher just don't give a fuck what the doctor says, and they're going to do what they want. And that's a fun enough setup for how they get into a mess. I like Frobisher. I like a penguin mascot character. So like, you know, the actual like bulk of the story, it's like not really doing anything like innovative thematically or anything, but it's like a fun enough, well-written setup of just like, well, we're just gonna fuck around, and then there's a fun alien, and it's neat. I think John Widray wanted to draw a fun alien and draw a bunch of surreal TARDIS interior sets, and you really do get some great stuff. There's a There's one room that appears to just be a bunch of floating circles in space that you can just, like, hop down. There's a jungle. There's a zoo. And, like, each zoo's enclosure is just, like, a little box. And inside is, like, a huge space for the animal to roam in that the doctor keeps endangered species inside. Um, Yeah, it's, um... I think it's just an excuse for that and then for Grant Morrison to write some pretty fun like character banter and that's about it it also occurs to me we haven't already specifically said that these stories are entirely in black and white so it's our first time covering comics without color on the show and by and large i like the inking here i think it looks nice and just like really polished well inked line work like the images of the alien creeping up partially in shadow are nice I think the contrast between the white and the black on the page looks very nice in a lot of places. All in all, it's just like a very sharp-looking comic. You know, like, it's not necessarily stylistically, like, definitely my aesthetic or anything, but just on a pure technical level, a lot of it just looks very well done. 
Yeah, I um I actually really love this art. The um as someone who's familiar with the show, the characters of uh, the Sixth Doctor and Perry, I think are quite recognizable. I, a lot of licensed comics have the issue where they're like either overly photo referenced or the characters just stop looking like the ones from the show or movie or whatever because drawing real people's tricky. Um certainly in the form of a comic without just referencing photos, but these don't have either of that problem. Um, they don't look uncanny valley, they look like comic characters, but they're very recognizably the characters from the show, which is nice. Um, yeah, and then the, there's the surrealist sections where, like, they open a door and it's meteors or an asteroid belt for some reason in the TARDIS. Why the TARDIS has an asteroid belt is beyond me, but it's great. Um, they did a version on TV where they did a similar thing where they were walking through the TARDIS and, like, one sequence was set on a beach for some reason. Um, so, like, the TARDIS is just strange. It sounds like these comics are leaning into, like, aspects of the lore that are harder to do on a live-action TV budget. So that's cool. Because, like, I'm definitely more interested in seeing a version of the TARDIS where I'm allowed to see all this weird shit because they're not confined to one set. Yeah, the um, the TV show, especially at this time in the 80s, is uh, legendary for not having the budget for their ambition. Um, yeah, this is, this is significantly better looking than anything you would have gotten on the television back then. Uh, this is... Yeah, yeah. If they did something like this at this point in time... Um, well, actually, they tried that. So in the late 70s, they did a story where there was a lot of TARDIS interior sequences, but they had to shoot on location because they couldn't afford all the sets, so they shot in a disused hospital. And it's just, like, corridors in a building that is going to be, like, demolished in a couple of days. Dirty concrete. Everyone just sort of walking through that. Whereas in this, you get lush jungles weird staircases that don't make sense, hallways that stretch out to the point where you just can't see the end. Um, so that stuff's great. I also really love, completely off topic, when the creature's transforming, I think it's a really great effect. The um, It has like a long snout in its, its sort of default form, and there's a couple sequences where you just see the characters with like these really freaky elongated faces that are like physically stretching out. It's a very physical transformation. You saying that just reminded me down my stream of thoughts that, oh, maybe at some point I can recommend the Animorphs graphic novels for some more nice freaky transformation sequences. Oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I appreciate this too. Like, I like a good creepy, like, midway through transformation panel where, like, the face is contorting and features are getting all fucked up. That's fun. Um, so, surprisingly for a story set inside inside the TARDIS, there's very few Easter eggs. There's less than you'd expect, but there's a couple fun ones. Um, any Doctor Who fans listening, there is a room that for some reason has mannequins with the outfits of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Doctors on it. And there is a brief view of the third Doctor's car, Bessie, through a door. And then the final part of the comic, where they have the final face-off against the creature, is set in the secondary control room 
from some of the fourth doctors time the the one where it's all wood paneling where just everything is the exact same wood texture that one with like the the very small stained glass embellishments that's about it it's odd considering how much of this is set inside the tardis but even the sequence at the beginning where perry is referencing things the doctor has there's not much that leaps out to me is actually being from a previous Doctor Who story. It's just like, the Doctor never met Michelangelo on television, and Van Gogh doesn't appear in the show until 2010, and hadn't met the Doctor before, according to that episode. So, yeah, there's very it's very surprising how few of these there are. Um, Looping back again to the TARDIS for a minute... I get the impression from these comics, more from another one that we'll talk about in a minute than this one specifically, but I get the impression that the TARDIS is sentient to a degree. So I guess that's just my question is like, yes, yes or no. And to like, does it have a personality and does it like converse with the doctor directly? So she does, but she normally cannot directly converse with the doctor um, there is one episode written by Neil Gaiman where the TARDIS's, like, personality core or whatever gets stuck inside a human body, um, which is an amazing story, uh, that if you're gonna watch any Doctor Who, watch that one, um, called The Doctor's Wife. Beyond that, generally speaking, the TARDIS is unable to talk to people except for the stories where she can. There's an audio story where she spends most of it as a hologram of an old Doctor Who character called the Brigadier um, but it's also like at the time she's being possessed by a thing and is like secretly evil it's a whole the story was literally inspired by Alice in Wonderland it's completely nonsensical don't ask me to explain Zagreus here please okay I won't <laughs> um do we have any final thoughts on this one before we move to the second story Yes, I love how when confronted with two Perrys, because the shapeshifter has turned into Perry, the Doctor and Frobisher figure out which one is the actual creature by realizing that since it's a single being, it cannot imitate clothes properly, so they are fused to the flesh and all part of the same thing, and they're just able to go, oh look, it's that one. It's got the creepy clothes flesh. It's got the creepy pearl necklace skin folds. <laughs> Ugh! I love it. This this one's just an enjoyable short little great art. Yeah, it's fun. The Doctor does a thing at the end and the creature gets like sucked out. That's it. Really simple. Really fun. A lot of fun. Frobisher shapeshifts to fight it and they shapeshift at each other for a bit. Cool creatures. Nothing recognizable from Doctor Who again. Just like an excuse to draw neat stuff. I guess on the topic of Frobisher, again, another one of my noob questions. So is Frobisher a popular character, or is he like Herbie from Fantastic Four and everyone hates him? Everyone who knows about Frobisher loves Frobisher, would be my assumption based on what I've seen in the fandom. Unfortunately, I, I'm going to assume that the right situation with Frobisher is complicated, because there has been disappointingly little Frobisher content thrown our way, um, so... Yeah, but uh, if if anyone from any Doctor Who producting any medium is listening, uh, Frobisher, please, something. Frobisher on TV, do it. Do you mean to tell me that if I go down to Second and Charles right now, I cannot purchase a Frobisher Funko Pop? 
Do you mean to tell me <laughs> that I, mean, I can't do that? Buy one of the Penguin from Wallace and Gromit 2 without his little red hat on, and that's the same thing. But how will I know if it's him, if it's in the wrong, bo- wrong box and it doesn't say Frobisher, Just write as I collect them, <laughs> but that will decrease its value for when I bring them in to a used goods store in two years and expect $700 for it. <laughs> yeah, I can't help with reselling stuff. Yeah, what was the, uh, what's the next story? Uh, I figured next let's cover Culture Shock. Um, this is technically a later story, but, um... World Shapers has a lot going on, so we'll get this one over with, and then we'll just use the rest of recording time to try and explain World Shapers. Um, so Culture Shock was written by Grant Morrison with art by Brian Hitch, and um, yes, it is that Brian Hitch from Ultimates, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff, but I knew him from Ultimates, and then turns out he actually did concept art for Doctor Who when it got revived back in 2005, and is partly responsible for why the Daleks and TARDIS look like they do these days. Um, letters by Zed. Editor was Richard Starkings, who I assume is the same as Richard Starkings from Richard Starkings and Comic Craft. And it was originally printed in Doctor Who magazine number 139. This one's the simplest, I think. It's just, um, so we've moved Doctors now. We're a couple years later in, like, publication time. So it's the seventh Doctor now, um, who is, like, just a little funny guy wearing a very weird outfit with a lot of question marks on it um he's traveling alone in the tardis and is having a moment of existential depression about being old and useless uh meanwhile there is what appears to be a sentient colony of bacteria who are being hunted down by a virus floating through some kind of alien being on this planet um, they are desperate to reach out beyond the home body into outer space and find the overbody. Um, the Doctor hears their psychic distress call because the Doctor is a little bit telepathic like all Time Lords are. Um, debates getting involved and then immediately gets involved because it's the Doctor and that's what he does. And manages to, after, like, seeing the alien creature that the bacteria all live in figures out what's going on and finds an antivirus for them injects it and then puts the dead animal that the bacteria live in into the ocean which turns out to be the overbody and they all very happily go into the ocean to multiply forever at which point the doctor is just like much happier having done this and takes off in the TARDIS to go and save more people and do more things and see more stuff. To go in and, and participate further in the television show Doctor Who on Saturdays at 7 o'clock, BBC One. So this one I like a lot. I think I think you're right that it is the simplest one, which I think works in its favor and it's literally just here's a weird sci-fi idea we're just gonna play with it we waste no time establishing it and as far as the creative team goes i think this is the one that most reads like what i would picture in my head a grant morrison comic reads like specifically in terms of the way this intelligence talks you know grant morrison loves to do 
dialogue where like a creature or a phenomenon just speaks in English but like its syntax is just a little bit fucked up to like indicate like something lost yeah. in Yeah. Yeah, this is very we free. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, that's a depressing thing I'll have to pick sometime. Oh no, um, I was going to say I was going to pick it. <laughs> that is Oh god. We'll just fight over Morrison comics. Yeah, um yeah, like the language of this intelligence is very what I picture of Morrison. Brian Hitch meanwhile, this is nothing like what I associate with Brian Hitch's work. This is my favorite Brian Hitch artwork. Yeah, like, I feel like there's no way I can phrase it that doesn't sound like a diss, but like... I don't think he's bad, I just think this is the best stuff. Yeah, it's, like, there's just... I think my problem with a lot of modern Hitch art is how samey so much of it feels, especially with regard to, like, human expressions... Whereas, like, I feel like I see more nuance and variety in the Doctor's facial expressions here than I have in any other Brian Hitch comic I've ever read. And, like, the alien stuff is well drawn, too. And, you know, there's just, like, an abundance of detail and line work. And it just looks nice. And the, like, crisp black and white, like, the Ridgeway work looked. And I find a lot of the time that... I suppose modern Brian Hitch art is on books that aesthetically I'm just not into, like the Ultimates, where the whole point is even the coloration is dark and grim and gritty, whereas comparatively here I get to just enjoy the nice line work that's not being bogged down with a sense of just, this is early 2000s commentary that has to mean something. George W. Bush does not show up in this comic once, and that is a blessing to us all. That generally helps, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, I really like this one. Um, this intelligence, the way they speak is great. The art is, again, I just can't believe this. Look at this, this facial expression. There's a bit where the doctor is like looking at the antivirus thing that he's using, and he's just got like the weirdest smile on his face, and it's really expressive. And, um, yeah, maybe, maybe Brian Hitch just needs to like do black and white line arc and 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 not not have to do uh not have to get everything colored maybe that's the trick i don't know because the line art is just really pretty there's a lot of stuff with the there's the the stuff that focuses on the cells like floating through the what they call the home body um and that looks a lot like some of the stuff brian hitch would do with like the alien designs and was it justice league of america that brian hitch did where he looks like art and writing um, he did art on JLA in the early mid two thousands with yeah. Mark Wade, and then he also, I believe, I think he wrote Andrew the initial Reaper run, if I'm remembering the timeline That's right, because he did That's a JLA thinking, by himself, yeah. I believe. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, where it's the um that really biological look. It's really really good. Yeah, like. These comics are just pretty. It feels surprising to me that you were the first one to pick something in black and white and not me. Me just introducing you to the concept of manga. But yeah, these pages just look just really nice and crisp. Like, I don't know. I like looking at nice art. Nice, well-inked art. Yeah, oh, um, IDW did some colored reprints of these. They are ghastly. And also how I first encountered these stories, I was really happy... Um, we're reading from the Panini Books Trades, 
um, of Doctor Who magazine stories. Um, there is, like, IDW did some digest size stuff, but these are, like, quite big. They're the same size as the original magazines. Um, the, the, the culture shock is only eight pages. Like, every issue is only eight pages of comics, because it's just some comics in, like, a full magazine full of articles and stuff like that. And, um, so every page has, I think, a bit more storytelling on it than most American comics because the page is larger and can accommodate more panels. At no point do you ever get, like, a splash page in any of these. I've never read a Doctor Who magazine comic or anything of this size where they'll use a whole page for one image. Um, so it's it's really good to have it in this size and not digest. Go for the Panini book. If you're going to buy these, find the Panini ones. That's the good stuff. I remember like some of the IDW books I saw that were like even smaller than a regular graphic novel, much less like this big size. So just cramped and gross. Yeah, uh, I have very strong opinions on the presentation of comics and you, you have to do it well or there's absolutely no point. The art is vital and important. And this art was not designed to be coloured, and in my opinion, it should not be coloured. And I'm really glad that Benini released these volumes. They're paperback, they're relatively cheap considering how huge they are. And the other stuff in here is good too. I've read all the way through both of these, I think it's all good comics. Uh, if you're into Doctor Who, just get them, frankly, be my, my opinion. Yeah, like, as the noob of the two of us, I think these were fun, even as someone who literally had never consumed Doctor Who before. So these are a solid starting point, and I imagine you would get e even more of them if you actually knew anything about these. So now we're on to our final story. Uh, it's the World Shapers. So this was, again, written by Grant Morrison. The art was, uh, we're back to John Ridgway on pencils. Inks uh, by Tim Perkins. Letters by Richard Starkings. And the editor was Shelia Craner, and it was originally printed in Doctor Who magazines 127, 128, and 129. Um, so before we talk about this one, Eric, any questions? So my impression was like, there's some sort of evil robot race that's like recurring in Doctor Who... And that, like, the aliens we see in this are, like, retconned to be, like, prior versions that evolve into them. Except then the aliens will evolve into good guys and, like, save all sentience or some shit. Like, it seems very much like Morrison is doing a, ah, 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 don't get your concept of what's good and evil too rigid and everything will change and, yeah. This is, this is, in my opinion, I think this is the most... Morrisonian comic that we're doing today like most in my head when I picture what is Grant Morrison's work like this is what I think of when I think of what their comics are except that this is also bizarrely continuity oriented for a comic that was printed in the 1980s um when the stories it's referencing are from the 60s and weren't even available on VHS yet this is so strange Morrison, by the way, huge Doctor Who fan. Um, so I'll just, I'll summarize this and then I will explain what's happening. So uh, we're back to the sixth Doctor who's just traveling with Perry now. No Frobisher, sadly. Um, the TARDIS materializes on a very wet and rainy world. 
Um, oh no, Frobisher is here. We're back to the sixth Doctor Perry and Frobisher. Uh, the TARDIS materializes on a very wet and rainy world, um, following some kind of distress signal. The Doctor swiftly re recognizes the planet. It's called Marinus, um, and he says he's been there before a long time ago, and faced a race of amphibious assassins known as the Vord. So V. O-O-R-D, if you want to go on to the TARDIS wiki and figure out what the fuck is going on with these guys. Can I interrupt to ask you one question? Absolutely. How many of those wiki articles have you personally edited or written? I have not edited or written any, but I have read through an unhealthy number of them. Um, I'm not on the level of a wiki editor for Doctor Who, and I have been a fan since 2005, and like obsessed i still haven't actually watched all of the classic show partly because a lot of it just doesn't exist anymore in like a watchable format you'd have to listen to the soundtrack because they deleted it from the bbc archives in the 70s so they could reuse the videotape for god knows what but you know doctor who's the only thing that's valuable now um if you have any doctor who's on like some kind of videotape Call the BBC and give it to them. If it's one of the missing ones, you'll be very popular with people. Um, okay, so they arrive on the planet. Uh, they see the source of the distress call, which is a weird-looking building. This is this is John Woodway having some fun again. Um, it's a TARDIS, but in supposedly its default form, so it looks very strange. I, it's like a metal structure that's all curvy. It's yeah. much more of, like, sci-fi architecture than the police box. Like, just geometric and pointy, like it has spines. Um, then there is a Time Lord who is dying, uh, crawling up some steps, trying to get back to presumably his TARDIS. Um, it's... Perry wonders why the the time lord doesn't regenerate but the doctor um realizes that he's at the end of his life cycle because most time lords can only regenerate 13 times 12 times they can regenerate 12 times so they have 13 possible faces or 14 if they make the right choice at the end <laughs> actually if you that it, yes yeah that's that's kind of what happened with the doctor anyway because they're coming up on that soon, aren't they? Aren't they on, like, the 12th? Oh, no, no, they've already passed that. Um, so the 11th Doctor is technically the 13th face. Because there was a secret Doctor between 8 and 9 called the War Doctor, and then 10 happened twice, because he regenerated into himself at one point, and that counted towards the 12, like, it's 12 glowy bits. You gonna tell me about the Doctor's glowy bits? Because I wasn't aware of this <laughs> lore. Well, the Doctor, the regenerations. So they can regenerate 12 times, and the Doctor's already well past that. But the Doctor doesn't have that limit anyway, because the Doctor is an ancient being from another dimension who the Time Lords are genetically based on, but is presumably, based on what we've seen, able to regenerate a theoretical infinite number of times yeah we will be discussing more complicated continuity when we get to spider-man this is nothing um chris chibnall is doctor who's own nick spencer that's if, if you've been reading recent spider-man 
and watching recent Doctor Who, you'll probably figure out the comparison. Trying to explain Doctor Who's harder now. Anyway, in the context of this, the Doctor's an ordinary Time Lord, and not even that old compared to some of them. Um, so the Time Lord, like, disintegrates, and the Doctor's concerned because it usually doesn't happen that fast. Um, they go into the other TARDIS and figure out what the disturbance is, and they realize that time is moving faster on this planet. It's been sped up. And so uh, everyone's fingernails and hair are, like, getting long and weird. Um, so they... Oh, the dying Time Lord made a reference to Planet 14, uh, a statement the Doctor seems to recognize. And so the Doctor decides to go and ask his old friend Jamie McCrimmon, who he thinks will know um, because he vaguely remembers being in his second body. So this is the sixth Doctor. He remembers being in his second body the last time someone mentioned Planet 14. And he traveled with a character named Jamie through all that time. So he reckons Jamie will know because Jamie would have been there. We then cut to some aliens who um, are arriving on Marinus. Um, and so they are arriving there and they see that the last planet they were on, so the previous one, was Planet 13, um, a very clever roundabout reveal that Marinus itself is the Planet 14 that we are now suddenly concerned with. Um, the next issue, the Doctor, Perry, and Frobisher have all arrived in the Highlands of Scotland in the 18th century, um, and they arrive at a hut, and the Doctor's former companion, Jamie, is there, um, I guess I'm gonna have to explain Jamie. Jamie is a Scottish Highlander who traveled with the Doctor, um, between, I want to say, 1966 and 1969. Um, he and the, the, almost the entire tenure of the second Doctor, um, Jamie's a very fun character, uh, who had a very strong comedic bond with the Doctor, and um, went to all kinds of places. The end result of their travels, though, is the second Doctor winds up having to call the Time Lords to help them with a problem. And at that point in time, this was the first time a Time Lord showed up in the show, and it was revealed that the Doctor had been breaking Time Lord laws by, like, saving people's lives when he showed up places and people's lives were in danger. So to punish him, they exiled him to Earth, and to prevent further changes to the timeline, they wiped the minds of his companions at the time, Jamie and Zoe, um, and sent them back to where they belong in time before the Doctor met them, um, so that they remember their first encounter with the Doctor, so their memories line up with everyone else, but they don't remember actually traveling with the Doctor. Um... That was the last time at this point that Jamie had, like, been in anything. So this comic is picking up on this plot line that was dropped in the 1969. And uh, this is now the 1980s. No one had watched this story on VHS. Grant Morrison is a huge nerd. I would make a joke about Grant having it recorded on VHS, except not even that would have been doable yet. I, there are tapes. Most Doctor Who's that old 
survive because someone filmed it off of their television onto their Super 8 camera. My god. It's it's rough. It's rough being a Doctor Who fan sometimes. Um, so they arrive at the cottage, um, and Jamie can't believe it's the Doctor. They have accidentally arrived 40 years later than the Doctor expected, so Jamie is now an old man. He also does remember travelling with the Doctor, because apparently, I guess in the time between being told the companions' minds were going to be wiped and them actually having wiped, the Doctor taught Jamie how to not forget while getting his mind wiped. So, yeah. I think it's just an easy way to, like, not worry about that. My assumption is Grant Morrison was just, like, a huge fan of Jamie McCrennan, who's Scottish. And Grant Morrison's Scottish. That makes sense. I'm a huge fan of Jamie McCrennan, and I'm Scottish. Um, so is the writer of Outlander. Uh, Outlander is actually just Doctor Who slash fic. The main character is called Jamie, or the main love interest is called Jamie because of Jamie McCrimmon. Outlander, the that author whose name starts with G, does uh, paranormal Diana romance. Galbadon, yeah, the, the the time travel romance stuff that's got the TV show. So the 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 main love interest name in that is Jamie Fraser. Um, Jamie McCrimmon is the character that Fraser Hines played in Doctor Who in the late sixties. Huh. Who's Scottish? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Outlander's Doctor Who slash fic. It's great. When you say slash, is it gay? Or what do you mean by slash fic? Oh, no, not slash fic. Why am I saying slash fic? Just That's like fanfic? Fanfic. Gotcha. Sexy fanfic. Fanfic, okay. kilts up. Does, do, in the context of fanfiction... I don't know, I've not read it. Maybe there is gay sex. I don't know. Do <laughs> do the words lemon and lime mean in the, anything to you? Not at all. I don't really read much fanfic. I probably should. I have, like, throughout the years, I'll, like, occasionally, like, every year or two, have a minute where I'll, like, read a lot for a month and then stop again. Basically, lemon and lime were terms in, like, 2006-ish era internet. Oh, God. Where you would describe your story as lime if it was, like, a little racy and suggestive and lemon if they were really going at it. Now, That's backwards. <laughs> yeah, Mom's isn't it weird? Sour. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I don't know why which citrus is more sexy than the other one, but yeah. So does orange mean just like this is basically just a regular story? I only ever heard sexy times. I only ever heard of lemons and limes. If there were any sort of fruit based descriptors, <laughs> I'm not aware of them. Um. Oh god, where on earth was I? Oh yeah, so Jamie does remember what Planet 14 is. This is a reference to the classic Doctor Who story, The Invasion, um, and the cyber controllers. So the Cybermen are a race of humans from the planet Mondas. They're not humans. Race of exactly identical to humans in every single way aliens from the planet Mondas who cybernetically altered themselves when their planet drifted out of orbit of... Actually, it was our sun. Mondas, in the original story, was the exact opposite orbit of the sun to Earth. So basically, whenever wherever Earth is in relation to our sun, Mondas is just on the exact opposite side, the same distance away. Um, Mondas, like, for some reason, drifted away and became really cold and hard to live on. 
So the Cybermen upgraded themselves with cybernetic parts, um, and in the process removed their emotions because emotions are a weakness. And they usually just wind up showing up places and want to turn people into Cybermen. Um, yeah, that's, that's their whole deal. They just show up places and they're like, we will make you like us. Um, so this was a story where the Cyber on Earth, and point is, the Cyber Control in this story, and this is a reference that was not explained in the TV show, but Grant Morrison clearly bothered by it, since they were 1960s, I, I guess a child, was like, the Cyber Control says that he remembered the Doctor and Jamie from Planet 14. So the Doctor's like, oh, this is bad, because Cybermen must be involved somehow, let's go back to the TARDIS. And old man Jamie wants to come along. Uh, they make a big deal about disappearing in the TARDIS in front of a bunch of confused Highlanders. And um, they go back to Marinus, only to discover the planet has changed vastly. The oceans are now gone, and it's a big canyony desert with a lightning storm. But no visible rain. One of those aliens from uh, the little interlude who were arriving on the planet shows up and he looks like way older. It's like covered in wrinkles and stuff. And explain, uh, well, nearly dies. And then we see shapes of, okay, to explain the Vord real quick. So the Vord are from, um, Keys of Marinus was season one. So it's a 1963 Doctor Who story called The Keys of Marinus, which, uh, that, they're wet, they're just guys in wetsuits. Like, they literally have, like, swimming flippers for feet. Doctor Who's real cheap sometimes. They wear full body covering, though. It was unclear in the story what they are, I think. I've not actually seen the keys to Marinus, but I have weirdly, I think, read or listened to every other appearance or major appearance of the Vord in other media. Um, they've appeared in a couple audio stories that I've listened to, and they've appeared in a couple comics that I've read. Um, they're some form of slightly upgraded human. So the figures that are emerging look like they're somewhere between the silhouette of a Vord, where they're a human being in a wetsuit with like a weird helmet, and the silhouette of Cyberman, where they are a human being in a wetsuit with a slightly different weird helmet. Yeah. Um... The Doctor recognizes them as Vord, but notes that something's changed them, um, and they run into the TARDIS to get away. The alien introduces himself as Maxilla, and says he maintains what's called World Shaper Machines that artificially accelerate time and cause rapid environmental changes on uninhabited worlds, and says that Marinus was planet 14 on their list of planets to do this to. Um, there's something wrong with the machine, and when they arrived to fix it, they realized that the planet was actually inhabited. If I remember what I've read about Keys of Marinus before, there's, like, a lot of sequences where they inhabit, where they, like, meet life on that planet. These aliens did a terrible job. This planet has obvious intelligent life. There's men in wetsuits on this planet. How did you not notice that? I idiots. So... The Vord have taken control over the machine and are, like, using it to evolve rapidly into Cybermen. 
So the Vord, and this is this is just from this comic. This is not in the television show. The Vord are an early form of Cybermen. Grant Morrison has taken two existing Doctor Who monsters and said, like, they look kind of similar. Same thing. Here we go. Is this continuity linking referenced in later Doctor Who material at all? Not for many, many years. However, in a 2017 story depicting the origin of the Cyberman, um, the writer of that story, Stephen Moffat, paid homage to the many other Doctor Who stories that depict the origin of the Cyberman because they didn't have one in Classic Who. Um, like, the the Daleks wound up getting a story that was, like, where the Daleks come from, but the Cybermen, their first story, they just show up. So that story depicting the origin for them references that the Cybermen have multiple origins, all of which, according to that story, are equally valid. Weirdly, Marinus and Planet 14 are referenced in that story by the Doctor as though they are separate places. So this comic is referenced very oddly. Oh, and Mondas, because we find out later, so the Doctor's like, Mondas and Marinus are the same place in this. So what Morrison is trying to do is he's like, well, there's an MS planet with weird people in swimsuits and another MS planet with weird people in swimsuits and this planet being referenced, and I don't know what they're referencing because they never did anything with that, and also Classic Who was never written in a way they would, like, follow up on anything anyway, um, and just fixing it all and making it all the same place. This is very uh, Weapon Plus from the X-Men run, where they took all of, like, the Weapon X program from Wolverine's backstory and, like, a whole bunch of other Marvel Universe genetic engineer someone to be a super soldier things and said all the same thing it's weapon 10 it's not weapon x it's weapon 10 it's the 10th one there were 10 of them and some more after that um and the whole thing was called weapon plus and it like started with captain america this is this is that but like doctor who continuity which feels almost pointless considering doctor who has no continuity frankly so the doctor takes jamie because he realizes this is how the cyber controller recognized them as being from Planet 14. And I guess the Doctor is really into completing that little time loop. They make it to the World Shaper, uh, but Maxler gets killed. And the Cybermen are there, planning on using the machine to just super advance themselves. Um, the cyber controller looks mostly like a Cyberman now. And um, the Doctor and Jamie fight their way out. Jamie grabs his sword and goes towards the world shaper which is like protected by a shield and dies destroying it and saving the day uh it results in like a big time warp thing the doctor escapes to the tardis and hides in there with perry and frobisher uh some very cool art does the whole time warp thing and then it's safe for them to come out um and there's a bunch of time lords there and they tell the doctor off because the doctor has realized that this means that the Cybermen are in their earliest point in history and he's got a chance to stop them from doing all of the horrible things they'll eventually do, including in the TV show killing one of his companions in his previous incarnation. So stopping the the Cybermen in their early days is always a very personal moment for the Doctor because of that. Um, the Time Lords send the Doctor away 
and wonder why he gets so passionate. And they're like, well, he's very young and hasn't grasped the complex beauty of the construction of space-time. And they establish that the Cyberman will evolve again in five million years and become beings of pure thought and the most peace-loving and advanced race in the universe who will lead everything into a new era of understanding. The Time Lords had visited this future um, yesterday, apparently. And they decide that a few million years of evil and bloodshed are well worth the salvation of all sentient life, apparently. And and that's that's the end. Um, so, what did you think of this one? Um, I think this is my least favorite of the three, largely because I suppose, like, you know, I imagine if I was familiar with the franchise, <laughs> then the idea of, like, linking these disparate things would be cooler to me. Whereas going in with no prior context, it's like, it's not like a reveal or a twist to me because it's my first time with these concepts anyway. You know, it's not like, oh, the Cybermen are really this because this is my first time reading about a Cyberman, you know? Um, it's not like a bad story. Um, Frobisher is in it. Not enough. Yeah, not enough. Frobisher's not even there for the final act. It's like, it's just the Doctor and Jamie. Uh, I, I think Perry and Frobisher are only in this story because they were already traveling with the Doctor last comic, and I guess we gotta keep that continuity going. Yeah. It's like, I imagine, like, I can see, like, what would be easy to, like, appreciate about this, but it's, I don't know, it's not doing as much for me. So I guess question, like, the Doctor is this ancient being, but the other dudes who show up at the end are like, he's young. So I assume that means they're even more ancient beings. So in the context of 1980s Doctor Who when this was written, the Doctor is in his sixth, incarn sixth incarnation, but only the first Doctor died of old age. All the other ones have died due to violent circumstances, so if you're a Time Lord who has lived and died of old age, let's say, six times, you're probably way older than the Doctor, considering an incarnation can last for hundreds of years. So presumably these Time Lords are just, like, on their sixth or seventh lives, or maybe they're older than that. And like all Time Lords, because they just sit around on their butts on Gallifrey, they've just died of old age a bunch. So they could be literally, like, centuries older than he is. They could be thousands of years older than he is in the context of this comic. The Doctor is, of course, far older than any of them. Because the Doctor is an ancient being from another dimension who their genetics are based on. But that's irrelevant to this because that is a retcon from 2019? 19? 20. 2020. That is a retcon from 2020. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And yes, the Time Lords always wear outfits that silly. They sure do have headdresses on um i guess thematically too it's not doing as much for me in terms of just like you know the whole ending thing of just like he hates them but he doesn't understand that these violent things will become good and just like makes you think and i'm just kind of like okay you know like it's not that it like falls totally flat like i don't think it's bad but I don't know, I suppose the way it sort of, like, raises that sort of, like, moral idea, but it does it at the end, so it doesn't really have a lot of time to really play with it or really get into it. 
which makes sense considering that these are backups in a magazine, you know? Like, it's understandable that it's not Morrison's big, developed philosophical treatise on good and evil. Well, we don't know that this is a Cyberman origin story until the last panel of a page seven pages from the end of a 24-page story. 24 pages. The way that the page count is that, like, maybe a couple over, but that of an average issue of American comics. And yet, you could tell me that there are seven times as many panels in this bitch, and I would believe you. There's just so much going on. They bring back a companion from 20 years earlier in the show and send him off to a fairly dignified end, which has not been contradicted by any other Doctor Who thing. Um, so far as I am aware, this is the only story with post-memory wipe Jamie in it at all, except for, like, stories where post-memory wipe Jamie is having vague memories of, like, a Doctor Who adventure, and the actual main plot of the story is the Doctor Who adventure that, like, memory wipe Jamie is remembering. So this is just, I guess canonically so far as you can say for Doctor Who having a canon this is the death of Jamie McCrimmon vital and brilliant companion the actor of whom is still doing audio dramas to this very day yeah this is this is the weirdest comic how do you enjoy it as someone who's much more familiar like does the do all the reveals and everything like hit different for you so, the reason I initially read this comic back when I first read it in that terrible IDW recolored was partly because written by Grant Morrison, and partly because I already knew about all the retcons from reading the wiki pages, because the wiki pages for the Cybermen and the wiki pages for the Vord are really complicated and interconnected solely based on these 24 pages. Um, so, I... I don't know how the reveals would have hit someone in the 1980s, but I'm fairly certain they'd be like, what's a Vord, frankly? Um, it's just such a strange choice. I just, it's so weird. It's so weird. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I enjoy it. It's a very strange canon plaster story, and those really aren't my cup of tea normally. But this is definitely Morrison, I think, practicing for their better retcon stuff later on. Um, uh, oh, 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 Eric, cover your ears. Spoilers for Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, the reveal that um, the Chief caused the accidents that created the original Doom Patrol is also kind of like this, where it's like connecting a bunch of unconnected things in a way that creates a new story. Except, in every other project Morrison does, that you can cover your ears now, Morrison has, like, the time to explore it. Whereas this story interconnects these things, and then the Doctor leaves because the Time Lords show up. Yeah. Um, I kind of get why the Vord are Cybermen. Um, no other appearance of the Vord references them being Cybermen. There's a very good comic called The Four Doctors, where the Vord turn out to be one of the main enemies. And in that, they're, like, super advanced versions of the Vord who wear, like, liquid metal suits. 
um, where they look a bit more like Cybermen because now they're metal and not like black rubber. Um, but they're still not directly connected to the Cybermen. It's just the story and then the one reference to it later on. Um, Mondas is pretty firmly not Marinus. Let's just assume the Doctor is like leaping to some very weird conclusions here. Um, and not actually right when he says that Marinus is Mondas because we see Mondas in other stories and it's very different looking, but who knows, really. It's, um, yeah. I like what it does for Jamie. I think this is an interesting take on the character with him being 40 years older and, um, because he's, like, tried to tell people about all of his adventures with the Doctor, they all think he's, like, a mad old man and so he's just tired of being, like, disbelieved and is just really happy to see the Doctor. Oh, um, Perry and the Sixth Doctor met Jamie in a story where they met the Second Doctor and Jamie while they were traveling together. So Jamie recognizes the Sixth Doctor and Perry and knows the Sixth Doctor is the Doctor even though he looks and sounds completely different than he did when he was traveling with the Second Doctor because of the one story where he met the Sixth Doctor and he knows that they're the same person. That, just to explain that in case you were confused by that. Jay and Miles explain Doctor Who. <laughs> um, I, I, I could not actually pull that off. I'd have to sit through so much 60s Doctor Who and I frequently love it, but also sometimes you're like, this three-hour story is something we would do in 45 minutes now. Oh my god. Um, this is the opposite problem. It's just too much, I think. I think this should have been six issues of Doctor Who magazine, and I think that then it might have had enough space. And it should have had at least a whole issue set after the destruction of the World Shaper, maybe exploring some of the concepts that Morrison brings up. It's too many big ideas and too much weird Doctor Who continuity. Um, the TV show was doing some weird continuity stuff at the time, like, I guess... There are the novels that they adapted all Doctor Who episodes into that you could read that was the main way back in the day to actually, like, experience an old Doctor Who story. Maybe if you'd read a bunch of Target novels, you would be like, oh, the Vord, I remember then from when I read Doctor Who and the Keys to Marinus that one time. Yeah, there's... There's a lot going on here. It is interesting to think about just, like, old-school media not being preserved in the same ways in terms of either not being available at all or limited or like being available in novelization recreation <laughs> different from now everything gets released repeatedly and then re-released and just like this sort of heavy continuity in a world without the Doctor Who Unlimited app or whatever the fan. I would kill for a Doctor Who Unlimited app. Just just that DCU app with the TV shows and the comics on it, bring that back, but it's just Doctor Who and I can read all the books because there is so much Doctor Who dead media, it's insane. There are like whole lines of com uh, novels that went on for literally two decades that are um, only available used and will probably never be reprinted. Good God. Um, we are coming close to our time limit tonight. Did you have any final thoughts you wanted to comment on with regard to these Doctor Who stories? 
Um, oh, yeah. The uh, John Woodray art in World Shapers, I think, is still really good. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, I hadn't talked about the art for this much. Yeah, it's it's all good. Yeah, largely the same sort of impressive stuff as before of, like, the architecture, nice inks. What has Ridgeway done since? I'll have to... Hang on. I don't even know. John Robert Ridgeway III is an American college football defensive tackle. That's probably not right. Um, maybe if I add comics. Oh, there's no E. Right. Here we go. He drew Zoids, the Incredible Hulk... Created the look of Hellblazer. The artist chosen to depict Judge Dredd without his helmet. That's a big deal. Although severely disfigured by an acid river in the Dead Man saga. Um, that begs the question. Are you going to make me read Judge Dredd at some point? Yes. I, I will do so. Because that's how the format of this show works. I'll pick but go in good. knowing that when you do Judge Dredd you risk me having a retaliatory pick (laughs) in the week following. I will find something good and interesting. I honestly, I've not read much Judge Dredd, but I think that Judge Dredd is an interesting character and concept, if done well. Um, I need to read the stories where he's putting down rebellions that want to institute a democracy in the horrible nightmare fascist future that he lives and works for, because... That's loaded and could be interesting to talk about. Sure. I just... My connotation in my mind for Judge Dredd is just all of the magazines that came into our work that came in and just sat there and no one bought and were just shelves full of garbage that no one was buying of all of these teensy, flimsy Judge Dredd magazines. Ah, see, I, um... I'm a big fan of the the movie Dread from, um, is that 2013, 2014? It was originally Dread 3D. That one's like a solid, really violent, like, sci-fi action flick with good performances and, like, some fun visuals. Very good, like, what if Die Hard but future other than that, I, I haven't read much Judge Dredd. My stepfather's a huge fan, but I have not read. Um, so the most work that I can find for John Ridgway is just other other Doctor Who comics. And the most recent thing is Torchwood, which was a Doctor Who spin-off. So there was a Torchwood magazine? I This is why I can't edit the wiki. I did not know that the Doctor Who spin-off Torchwood got its own magazine for a minimum of 25 issues. So that's that's at least two years of Torchwood magazine. There's too much Doctor Who, and by too much I mean nowhere near enough. Keep doing it. More. Now that we're at the point where we're talking about spinoffs, shall I go ahead and introduce our pick for next time? Yes. So next week, in the spirit of Robert Pattinson, we are going to be doing our first Batman This is going to be the six-issue miniseries Batman Reptilian by Garf Ennis and Liam Sharp. This is catapulting us to modern-day comics. Uh, The first half of it is available to read on the DC Infinite app. The rest of it, it's so new that it's not even there yet. And it's so new that I don't even think the trade paperback is out yet. 
So these are very new. And if you want to get it to read along with us, you're probably just going to have to buy it digitally online. Hopefully somewhere besides Comixology that might have a workable comic reading app. I don't know what the alternatives there are now. I have not opened my Comixology app since that all went down because I am frightened. So I sadly have not been able to reread Inferno. Anyway, I'm excited for Batman. Um, I'm I'm seeing Battison soon, so uh, it's it's just gonna be all bat all week next week. Is Damien in that? Uh, no, Damien and like the Bat family at large aren't in it. The only like <sighs> the only like peripheral figure to Batman in it is just like Alfred. Okay, fine. I like the Bat family the best. I do too. We will we will have to get more bat picks in the future of the bat family. But for the next Morrison run. Yeah. <laughs> but for next week we'll be discussing Reptilian with lovely painted art by Liam Sharp. I'm so excited for the art. So you haven't even read like the first issue, you've read none of it, right? Nope, haven't gotten the chance yet. Nice. Okay. It's I keep just wanting to not tell you anything about the plot because I want you to just read it and react and not be have it ruined for you. Okay. But on that note, catch us next week, and thank you all, and bye bye Bye! Chris, Chris, and Eric, 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 Eric